is uh, Chris Bangle. He is the uh, founder, uh, kind of CEO of the We Are Libertarians uh, podcast network. He hosts a really good podcast called the uh, Chris Bangle Show. If you guys are looking for like basically kind of like a quick rundown of like current events and stuff like that. Um, he's also like in general, just a, a 15 year veteran of uh, He's worked in politics and different, you know, media and radio and whatnot. Um, and he is here with us today to talk about, um, you know, kind of like the current kind of like refugee crisis in general um, going on in the world, you know, specifically, you know, in the context of Ukraine and stuff like that. But uh, just kind of like, you know, what does it mean to be a refugee? Like, you know, what kind of like what's the process of what happens once you become a refugee? Kind of like how countries in the United States respond to being a uh, refugee. But yeah, Chris, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. So do you want to start off with like questions from the guys or? Uh, Up to to you guys. Uh, You know, we always run the risk. If I start talking, I won't stop. Do you guys have any like, I know I I talked to Sheets about this the other day. Do you guys have any questions in terms of like? About what, just how refugees? Yeah. Not that I can think of up top. All, All I know is that like, in Ukraine right now, it's like the biggest uh, like refugee crisis since World War II, right? Something like that. Yeah. yeah, I need to look up how many last I last I saw like I stopped watching daily coverage like two weeks ago. Um, refugees. Let's see how many have been displaced. Uh, f- Six point five million people displaced in the country, and four point three have left Ukraine. And, you know, I think everybody kind of has a a mental image at this point of Ukraine. Um, You know, I don't know if this is backwards, but if you're over here towards where Russia is, this is the Russian territory. And if you're over here, you're in Lviv uh, towards Poland. And what's interesting is the reason that these two separate parts of the country exist, Uh, like 150 years ago, maybe longer at this point, 200 years ago, you had the Russian Empire had control of like Donbass and Luhansk, the parts kind of over in the east. And they were an imperial, uh, you know, the Russian imperial mindset was erase their culture, erase their language. Uh, They're called little Russians now. And we're going to basically milk them for their resources. And, you know, it's interesting to note that Putin kind of has that same view in a lot of ways of them. Uh, And then in the West, you had the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, that basically lorded over Ukraine. And it was a much more classically liberal, you know, there's a reason we have Austrian economists. Because it came out of that classically liberal open state uh which encouraged ukrainian art they encouraged the language so you have a much stronger like culture in the the western part of the country than you do in the east uh and so the the majority of the refugees have moved from the north over in the east down to the south towards poland and are sheltered you know either in lviv which has just seen an insane influx of people. Lviv is fairly safe. That's why you see Anderson Cooper and Jake Tapper there. They're not. They're not in Kiev or Buka uh, or Mariupol. Uh, and then they're fleeing into Romania, Russia. Uh, yeah, I mean they are going to Russia. I mean people in Donbas are going to Russia, and there are some reports that Putin is actually rounding up Ukrainians and pulling them out of the country and resettling them in other parts of the Russian Empire, specifically, you know, the uh, Caucasian states like Chechnya. And that's part of uh, a... I mean, it's in the Bible. Like, the Assyrians did it essentially to, like, destabilize certain regions. And uh, what what you're seeing is people leaving, and why? I mean, if you've seen the images of what happened in Bukha with people lying dead in the street, summary executions of children. Uh, you know, I, I heard one story yesterday that uh, people are just, they're not going to leave their house. You know, if you're in a war zone, you don't leave your house, right? Like, there's, 
I, I don't know how there, it's hard for the American mind to comprehend this. I don't know if you guys remember in Boston when they were looking for the two Boston marathon bombers, they found them in the boat. And it's the only time in my life I can think of like the military on the streets patrolling, going house to house. Like it was very like uh, warlike in a lot of ways. And so people are not leaving Mariupol. They're not leaving, you know, the, the Eastern parts the Russians have completely pulled out of Kiev. Uh, they've given up. Essentially, what they're doing is they're going to just go and fight for annexing, like they did in Crimea, annexing Luhansk and, and Donbass specifically. Uh, and in, in, there's no food on the shelves. You can't go to the grocery store. There's, you know, in, in a war like this, there's the soldiers looting for food. You know, uh, we we talk so often about, especially in the last couple of years, about prepping, like having two weeks worth of food. And uh, imagine a situation where for the past two months, like nobody's been able to bring in any provisions. Nobody's been able to leave their house for provisions um, because of shelling, because of, you know, the Russian military on the street, because of getting mistaken for a Ukrainian or Russian soldier. The Ukrainians are not wearing uniforms, right? For the most part, it's uh, Ukrainian soldiers. And so Russian soldiers are just kind of summarily shooting at them as if, if they're the enemy. And so there was, in the early days, I mean, the, the reason there were so many people leaving in the first few weeks is that this is a very well-worn area of the world. You know, the Russians, the Great Crimean War with Napoleon, uh, you know, the the Nazis, I mean, one quarter of the Holocaust victims were Ukrainian. Uh, the Einzegruppen developed their tactics that they would later, you know, perpetrate in Poland in places like Auschwitz. It began in Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, we're two generations removed from that. <laughs> so... You know, our our my grandpa fought in World War II and never really talked about the war. Uh, but you know, think of how many of our grandparents were were in the war, and then obviously have 2014 and the ongoing problems. So, you know, and and not another thing about the Russian military and the way that they operate and the way that Putin has operated his wars. When you go back at the the history, you, you mentioned that you watched that Ukrainian documentary. Go watch on Tubi, Chechnya, a war, I think it's a war lost in time, but there's a great documentary that kind of outlines what's happened in Chechnya since, um, you know, the war ended. Putin basically committed a false flag act when he became president on an apartment building where he blew up an apartment building uh, before he was elected president. It's widely known that it was FSB agents, so think, you know, the FBI, CIA of the Americas blowing up an apartment building. It was a, a huge situation. He vowed that these Chechen terrorists would be brought to, to bear, and then went in and absolutely rubbled Chechnya and installed a puppet dictator. Uh, and so when Putin early in the war says in the Russian government releases that Chechen forces are moving onto the border and into Russia. Every Ukrainian has a, a, a strong understanding of what that meant. Uh, I have a personal connection to Ukrainian refugees. Uh, there are five uh, orphans for, for the last uh, summer and Christmas. My family homed some Ukrainian orphans four Ukrainian orphans that are 8 to 14, and they were in Odessa, and it was absolutely panicking, <laughs> panic to, to, like, get them out and, you know, ask their orphanage to, to leave. Russia bombed five orphanages yes yesterday. They're, th we all have seen how hard the, Rus the Ukrainians have fought, and the only way for the Russians to really kind of neutralize that upper hand in terms of fighting spirit was to try and break the Ukrainian people. And as libertarians, we all know that violence always backfires. All he did was create a Ukrainian identity, a Ukrainian founding father in Zelensky. When Zelensky had 30% approval ratings and was on the border of, border of being impeached in Ukraine, uh, he was prosecuting the previous president 
uh, and now they're allies. So you he he didn't want to unite NATO. NATO is now more aligned, and so you you end up uh, creating this U- Ukrainian identity and have all these people that have left. Uh, but there, my my point being, like that that first couple weeks, uh, there was real fear about getting those kids out of Odessa because they you'd seen the the hospital bombing uh the maternity ward bombing and i know and i will i will tell you that russia continually claims including a lot of russian aligned us media outlets claim that like these are false flags that these are things are made up um you can create a false flag event the ghost of kiev right the ghost of kiev wasn't real <laughs> You know, Zelensky's in front of a green screen. He's not actually out in the field. But there are limits to propaganda. Uh, And so when several hundred events over the span of a month are said to be fake, it becomes incredibly hard to believe. Uh, So when you have a history in Syria and Chechnya and other countries of committing war crimes, rubbling cities, using gas on civilians, uh, like history becomes the present. So, you know, one of the, I, I think it's important for us not to what aboutism or try to draw moral distinctions in that there's some sort of equality between, you know, the Ukrainians and Russians. And the reality is the Russian government is the aggressor. This is all predicated on coming in to exterminate Ukrainians. Vladimir Putin gave a 54-minute speech outlining why before he invaded. Uh, and when these people tell you what their intent is, you have to listen. And so Ukrainians listened, and they started to flee. But in that two-week period, we were trying to get the orphans out and move them. It had to be done in the cover of night. You have 97 orphans that you have to move. Well, there's limited funds. You don't know where you're going to take them. So if you're the orphanage director, for instance, and you've got all these kids that are temperamental (laughs) um, because they're orphans that have lived through uh, some pretty tough years, um, just imagine like from age zero to 18, I think it's 16 actually, uh, and you've got 97 of them and you've got... Uh, almost no staff because the director of the orphanage who was the first American killed in this combat uh, in combat in this war uh, left his post at the orphanage to go fight and was killed on day two of the war Um, you you have limited staff because the staff are worrying about their families you've got to give each of these kids three backpacks that they need to pack that you can't tell them where they're going because they might put it on Twitter because the reason that these other bombings happen with other orphanages is that the kids who have phones, we communicate with them almost daily, post where they're going. So you don't say where they're going. Uh, they don't know. Uh, and you've got to call someplace in Romania, Poland, uh, Moldova, I think it is. Moldova is one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, you've got to find some place in Poland that can house, uh, yeah, Moldova. You've got to find some place that can house all of these refugees. Thankfully, our orphanage did, but there are a lot of orphanages that are in the northern part of the country, you know, up in Cherniv and other places that didn't get out. And have seen casualties because the fa- the host families because I I mean I have a connection to several hundred different host families here in the U.S. that have been keeping track of this. Uh, the when I say orphanages are being bombed, I'm not saying because I went on the New York Times to read it. You see it in these adoption groups. You hear it firsthand. Uh, and one, okay, I sort of understand. Two. All right, maybe your missile missed again, but like 45 orphanages and 45 schools bombed in one town, 
You know, 45 orphanages bombed across the country. That's intentional. Um, and so if you're the director, you have that on your mind. So you finally, after a couple weeks, find a place that will take you, like a hotel, a resort. Uh, you can't split these kids up because they're wards of the state of Ukraine. Now, if you're the director, you can go to Poland and declare them as refugees seeking asylum, and those orphans would then be admitted to the Polish state. But how many, realistically, how many kids, how many orphans can the state of Poland start to absorb before they start to collapse? Um, so, I think, I hope that illustrates kind of the difficulty for this. Uh, you know, you've got to keep the kids intact as you're moving in the dark uh, into Poland, confiscate their cell phones, do it all under the cover of night. Um, so you now have countries like Poland that have millions of refugees. Uh, and one scary thought, like in Syria, for instance, that was a country of, I think, 20 million people and saw 10 million refugees leave. I think it was 45 to 50% of the country left Syria because, I mean, if you've watched any coverage, you just kind of see there's no place to eat. There's no place to live. There's no toilet. There's no working water. I mean, if you remember the images of Syria, it's just completely rubbled. Um, so, you know, another interesting layer to this is what... Well, Bel you, uh, yeah, go, about go ahead. Kind of like, you know, uh, I think it was Moldova being one of the poorest countries in... Um, in Europe, taking in a ton of refugees. You use the example of like the orphans going to Poland. Like obviously, like Poland can't, um, you know, they can't indefinitely take on refugees. <clears throat> like the current way they're operating. So, do you think that there's like a point where there's like there's, and you can talk about the United States too in your answer. But like, is there too many refugees where it's like, oh, like a country like sh like it should stop taking in refugees or would you say like they like they just need to keep letting them in until it all goes it all goes to hell basically? Um, yeah, I think I think if if twenty million people try to invade Poland, let's look up the you know the population of Poland. Uh, you know, there's eighty three million people in Russia and you add 20 million people, there's 38 million people in Poland, you add 20 million people, that's going to be destabilizing, right? So think about our housing crisis. That's because new builds have been drastically underbuilt over the last 10 years. You've got, you know, rising rental prices, you know, so housing gets more expensive. If you're a politician, are, are you willing to, uh, um, you know, destabilize your country? Uh, so what what's the limit? I mean, the United States, which is 330 million people, uh, under the Trump administration only let 12,000 people in. We're only letting in 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. We're a country that could easily absorb 50 million people. Like in after the Soviet Union collapsed, I believe the number of immigrants into Israel was like 20% increase in population almost overnight. Israel became and is and was one of the most successful countries in the world. You know, we, uh, you know, we just had this example, and I, I can talk a little bit about what happened at Camp Atterbury, where we had 7,200 Afghan refugees come and live. I lived in the largest collection of Burmese outside of Burma, the Chin people, in the south side of Indianapolis. And I lived in that part of town for 15 years. And frankly, when the white trash had it, it wasn't that nice. And 15 years later, after the entrepreneurial spirit of these immigrants came in, because they were allowed to flourish, the, that part of town has gotten better. Uh, you know, one thing in involving in the, the Ukrainian situation is Belarus's, and this is backed by Russia, weaponization of refugees on the border with Poland. So we've heard a lot of people, oh, what about the Syrian and Iraqi refugees and Kurds that, 
you know, have still after eight, 10 years not been settled. Uh, is, isn't this racist? Well, the answer is yeah. Um, Belarus, after I forget what triggered it, but uh, Lukashenko made this ridiculous uh, uh, request, and the EU did not grant it. And so he said, "Well, I'm going to flood your your the EU with immigrants." And so he started sending travel agencies down to Syria and northern Iraq with visas to get into Belarus and made it really cheap to travel to Belarus. And so over the last two years, you've had hundreds of thousands of refugees coming into Belarus, being put on buses, taking to the Polish border, and there's... I, th- I forget the number's crazy. It's like 100,000, but I don't know the number exactly. It's just large. Of people that have been, for the last year, trapped on the border because Poland has their army with their guns, and then on the other side of these refugees, Belarus has their guns pointed at the refugees. Whenever they try to make a plate across either one of the borders, they're gassed. And so they're living in these tent cities while they're watching white Ukrainians be funneled into Poland by the millions. Um, And it's hard not to look at that as anything other than racial. And a lot of that stems from, you know, the, the the media in Europe is very anti-immigrant. I had a girl on my show from Macedonia, which is just north of Greece, said when she went to France, she wasn't considered white. Her skin was as white as any of ours. (laughs) Like, but, they have this cultural distinction. And so, you know, you also have Putin building a lot of, I think we've all seen it around us over the last few years, kind of, you know, Russian-funded news outlets and and others exploiting, you know, for all the talk of wanting to denazify Ukraine. Putin is the, be- the biggest funder of right-wing parties in France and Germany, like the ADP and Le Pen's candidacy. And, the, and Orban, who is taking Ukrainian refugees, Viktor Orban, came to power on the backs of the refugee crisis and saying, I won't let them in. Um, and his tenants have basically been fighting against allowing refugees in and, you know, breaking down democracy. And I don't mean that just as a buzzword. I mean, democracy in attacking journalism, attacking the right of free speech, attacking the right of assembly, attacking other political parties, and using the state to intentionally erode civil society so people cannot oppose him. Um, And that is what would happen if Le Pen won in France. Not that um, uh, the current president macron is any better he is a it's like your choices in these countries and somewhat in ours it's like do you want to live in the russian fantasy or do you want to live in the chinese fantasy of how government operates and and controls you so so yeah there's there's just so much to refugees that are uh it's just um it points out a lot of stuff you know it's Refugees are people that have literally had their homes destroyed by American, Russian, and Chinese-made bombs. And, you know, this is partly why Israel was created. When the Holocaust was over and they opened up the camps, they were like, well, where do we go? And all of these European countries in the United States said, not here. And so they created Israel to let them go there because they didn't want Jews in their country. Um, So refugees, and this is true of any issue, any issue you... If you want to know what's really going on, you go look at the most marginalized, poorest person who cannot fight back. You want to know how DCS operates or does not operate in this country? Go find a poor single mother. Don't go ask a politician. Don't go ask somebody in power. Don't ask a journalist. Go ask a poor person who can't afford a lawyer and has relied on DCS to protect their kids. If you want to know how the world feels about minorities or poor people or... People from other countries, look at how the how the world has treated refugees over the last few years. Yeah, I think um, I think that's a good point, too, because I feel like um, you can see it, I think, specifically kind of like in the in like the 
I, I think you can consider them refugees, kind of like from, you know, mainly Latin America, a little bit of South America, people coming in, um, you know, that, you know, the process in America is so strict and so like difficult to get in as a refugee or even just as an immigrant that when, um, and this is kind of like what I try to bring up next, that like when they get here, it's like most of them do do it illegally or do do it, you know, whatever, like not completely like the correct way or whatever. So there, they would be a trouble with the authorities in some shape or form is that you kind of create like two societies where you have like the normal um, American like society of people that like go to school, you pay it, you, uh, you know, you, <clears throat> you like, you know, the language you go to, you go to places like, you know, like Chipotle or you, you don't have to worry about, um, you know, finding someone that, that, you know, has a similar like, uh, well, well, let me, can I, can I just make a distinction? Because I think it's really important yeah. between a refugee and an illegal immigrant. Illegal immigration is not happening all that much anymore. Mexicans are not hopping the border fence to get into this country. They have reached a level of wealth in Mexico that Mexicans are not coming here as much as they used to. The people that are coming here from Honduras, El Salvador, these war-torn countries, not because states are warring with each other, but gangs are warring with each other. And so the shape of immigration has changed over the last 30 years from men coming here for economic opportunities to orphans as young as 12 in some cases, uh, parents just sending their kids to the border to give them a better life, mothers and children uh, are the majority of the people that are trying to cross the southern border from these war-torn countries. Do you know why those countries are war-torn? Because in the 1980s, the war on drugs began, and you started putting a tremendous amount of people into jails, specifically in South uh, California, over the drug wars and in federal penitentiaries. And as the, as the population of prisoners increased, so did the need for regulation of the prisons. And so you started to see, for the first time in American history, in the 80s, the factionalization of gangs in prisons, and the creation of gangs like MS-13. Eventually, those people get released, and they get deported back to their countries. Well, now they have networked in American prisons. There are prisons, there's a great book, uh, Secrets of the Underground, or I forget the name of it. Um, where it talks about the constitutions that are written in these prisons uh, and the way that civil society is built amongst the prisoners and structures are built and political parties are built in American federal prisons because of drug laws. We then send them back to destroy their own country. And then when the people who are the most desperate and poor want to come to America and claim asylum because they have no ability to get food water they'll be killed because they were journalists they will be killed because they just tweeted the wrong thing they will be killed just because their cousin is attached to the wrong gang we don't let them claim asylum which they have every right under international law to do is to come here and claim asylum we instead keep them on the other side of a bridge in mexico there are ukrainians and russians that are sitting on the other side of the border in mexico that want to claim asylum and refugee status legally that are not allowed to. And so these are not illegal immigrants. That is a misnomer. These are legal immigrants that are not allowed to actually move forward through the process. The process that, you know, Donald Trump uh, changed that led to the border crisis of, you know, the kids in cages that had no access to toilets and, you know, the people that were dying in these, in these basically American concentration camps for lack of a better term, um, just unthinkable conditions, unworldly conditions that are beneath the dignity of the American people to fund. Uh, he ended catch and release. All right. So you come here and you claim asylum. You are given a court date and then you go on your merry way and then you never show up for your court date. And then you are thus here illegally in, in, some cases, in a lot of cases, uh, what he did is said, 
you come here and claim asylum, we're going to lock you up until we can give you a court date. And that's what led to the overcrowding of prisons on the southern border. Um, if you're going to make a policy change like that, you better prepare. And you better not, like, separate kids from their parents causing lifelong trauma. There are, I think the number is, it's over a thousand now, a uh, thousand kids at least in the United States that were separated from their parents at these borders, uh, released into the country, and are now orphans because of the United States government. So you can look at the politics of it, and that can be one thing, but let's look at the morality of how our tax dollars are being spent towards people that are fleeing a country that was destroyed because of our own policy choices. And you know, when we say we're not going to bring Afghans over, we're not going to let translators immigrate, we're just going to leave you to be killed by, by the Taliban because you cooperated with us for 20 years. That's an immoral society. When we say we're only going to let 100,000 Ukrainians in when we could afford to let in a million, that's an immoral society. There's no reason for it. And it's because we have been fed a lot of lies about refugees and immigrants being criminals that, you know, Alex Norwasheth, <laughs> I wish I could say his name, at the Cato Institute just, you know, has done so many different studies about how these statistics about how they're all criminals are not true. You know, if you look at... Um, you look at this one study from uh, examining crime data for U.S. cities most impacted by resettlement from 06 to 2015 from the org. they took 10 towns of where these settlements... So... Clarkston, Georgia, total city population in 2015 was 11,000. 4,000 of those were Burmese and Somalian immigrants. Decatur, Georgia, 6,000 out of 20,000 were from Burma, Iraq, and Iraq. Um, out of these 10 different cities, only one of them had an increase in crime because they had an opioid epidemic, another issue caused by our government. But, you know, a place like Clarkston saw an 8% drop in crime, 4.8% drop in violent crime. Uh, Utica, New York, 20% drop, 23% drop in cr property crime. Like, in Glendale, 47% drop. You know, Southfield, Michigan had a 77% drop in violent crime. Uh, and Southfield, Michigan had uh, 72,000 people and brought in 4,400 Iraqi immigrants. So when you really start to dig into the numbers, you know, in, in uh, oh, well, what about Germany? What about the crimes that are happening in Germany? You know, if you watch somebody like Paul Joseph Watson, he highlights the, you know, the violent crime perpetrated. Th those are all often legitimate incidents that have happened. But what he doesn't tell you is that they are usually 0.2% of the crime statistics that are happening in that area. The vast majority of crimes that are violent or property theft by refugees and immigrants are, are committed by natives of the country, citizens of the country. Uh, and, and in the case of America, the statistics of crime are even less because America was founded on immigration and knows how to absorb refugees, immigrants, and build a society around them. I mean, 7,200 Afghans settled in, uh, you know, the county that I used to live in, about 30 minutes from here, you know, and there were no issues. Now, of course, there were lies perpetrated by the right wing. Of the, of the local media that there were yeah, stabbings I, and all that kind of stuff, and that just never happened. It was literally fake. I, I, I think that's kind of like the, the, the point I was really trying to get across is like, it's more, this is more based off like uh, the personal experiences and anecdotes than like looking at, um, you know, data and stuff. But like, obviously, like the refugees and stuff, even though that there's kind of like this higher anti, like, refugees and immigrants coming in sentiment in the United States, they're coming anyways. So, and I think, I think this, that, that like anti outsider coming in sentiment, I'm worried that it's going to make it more difficult 
for them to assimilate into the United States and be welcomed as, you know, eventually as citizens and like people that we want um, to, you know, become citizens um, because that anti-immigrant sentiment is going to get to the laws and, you know, as, you know, as it obviously kind of is to an extent now and by, you know, when it does get into the laws and you have like, you make it extremely hard process, um, you're kind of creating a two tiered society where you have, you know, the people that are already there that were born here and, you know, or the people that are rich enough to afford to go through the process and not have to worry about their lives and whatnot. And the people that can't do that and they come to America and it's just much harder to assimilate and become more part of American culture and American society than it should be. Yeah. And you, you want to talk about violent crime. Look at the violent crime statistics that are perpetrated against illegal immigrants. Because an illegal immigrant is not going to call in her rape to the police. An illegal immigrant is not going to call that his, star was, his car was stolen. And so, you know, the violence that is perpetrated against illegal immigrants, quote-unquote, in this country is shocking and cruel and terrible. Uh, so I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it's, you know, it it is politicians... It, Immigration was largely a dead issue in the United States politics, except for just kind of in certain parts of the re- the Republican Party until Donald Trump revived it. And a lot of people in the right have seen how it has helped people like Viktor Orban and Vladimir Putin and Bolsonaro in Brazil and Duarte in uh, the Philippines, how it has helped them gain power and by stirring up this anti-immigration racism, you know, on masquerading. I mean, if you read a lot of what Stephen Miller writes, that was the head of the immigration policies for Donald Trump. It's shocking. Uh, And he literally talks about white supremacy uh, in some of his writings. Um, He's, he's a little more careful than most, but you know, you get on some message boards in 2014 and go wild, it eventually gets surfaced by somebody. So, uh, yeah, I I mean, I don't get it. I left the Republican Party in 2007 because of bigotry towards immigrants and because it doesn't make sense. We have, we have a crisis of labor in this country because we uh, are not allowing enough people in to start their American dream and every wave of immigrants. My last name is Spangle. The real last name was Spangler with two E's, not with A's. And the reason is that I would guess that if I traced it back in 1917, the name got changed because of bigotry towards Germans because of the war. You know, in both world wars, Germans suffered immense bigotry. Uh, you know, because of what was happening overseas. Innocent people were murdered and and uh, killed and beaten because of their German last names. And you saw the German culture in America be one of the most thriving cultures, you know, like the American Turner Society, evaporate in that period um, because of the racism of the, you know, and it helped lead to the 20s Klan. So... I think it's foolish for us to say it can't happen in our time. We're not those people. Look at all the good we do when we're already falling prey to it. 71% in a recent poll said we shouldn't, you know, we should not. So there's something called Section 42, which is a pandemic era stopping of anyone coming in for asylum. And it's led to a lot of people sleeping under bridges. Joe Biden has not wanted to remove it. You know, for all the talk of how horrible Donald Trump was on immigration, he's literally Hitler. Joe Biden hasn't changed almost anything from those two administrations. And now that he is announcing that he's going to remove this provision so people can start claiming asylum again, Democrats are criticizing him. Not Republicans. Well, they are too. But Democrats are the ones that are getting the press, like Joe Manchin, saying this is a problem. Why? Because over 70% of Republicans and over 35% of Democrats don't want this done. Because the overwhelming majority of this country does not want asylum-seeking refugees from any country coming into America. And it makes no sense, especially for a country 
that has grown to 335 million people off of immigration. Uh, it's, you know, there's a recent study that immigrants, I just think it's amazing that like these cultural conservative people, uh, you know, in the Republican party have a problem with like Hispanic, Catholic, anti, like largely anti LGBT pro family values, anti abortion people immigrating to this country. Like, a lot of Latin American immigrants share a lot of the same um, values in terms of like family, in terms of entrepreneurship. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense to me why libertarians and Republicans wouldn't look at the net benefit of bringing in new people, welcoming them to this country, and growing the base. But they have this fear. That is completely unfounded. There's a book called The Turnout Myth that if you let everybody vote, they're all going to vote Democrat. That's just not true. Like, every study doesn't bear that out. Uh, it has no real effect. And if you look at Trump's numbers with Hispanics and, you know, other ethnic groups, Trump did better in 2020 with them than he did in 2016. Why? Because people are tired of, like, you know, just being assumed that they're all progressives, you know, or woke, and they're not. Like, you say Latinx to uh, to a lot of your Latinx friends, and they, they want to punch you in the face. Do you guys uh, have any questions that sparked any curiosities? Yeah, so, like, is it just, like, probably, like, a safe assumption that... The majority of like the pushback for like refugees finding countries or finding like they're seeking like being able to like be refugees in either Europe or the United States mostly or solely based off of uh, just these like false presumptions and uh, like racism's kind of been established. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying everybody that is pro immigration controls is racist. I think you know they're. I, I think when you dig into the data, those false assumptions start to fall apart. Uh, one big problem that we have across the board in media is nut picking. You take one instance and pretend that's everything. You know, you take one trans swimmer and pretend this is a natural national epidemic of girls being, you know, cut out of girls' sports when you may have two or three in sports in any state right um but we you know <laughs> uh you know if you you like look at how people treat masks right i remember fauci talking in april 2020 about how only an n95 well-fitted worked and otherwise it's a detriment because you're touching your face too much. I mean, this was, I watch like the Sunday shows ever religiously every year. And I remember him talking about this, you know, but that got lost, right? Like there was no reason to wear a mask uh, that was cloth ever during the pandemic. Like it just, but you, you know, everybody got away with it. So, it, again, it's policy or cultural, like, uh, cultural, you know, narratives, I guess may be the word, that that kind of, it becomes like a viral loop of, well, this is the truth, you need to do it, here's this article from Breitbart that says this, or here's this article from Popular Mechanics that says this is the truth, like, but when you really dig in and look at the data... You're going to make different choices than just a lot of people who are just kind of just gleaning information off of Twitter. Uh, so I do think that there are people in the anti-immigration movement that have white nationalist designs. It's it's just irrefutable. Uh, you you But you also can't look at the, those people and pretend that's everybody. But I do think that if you are one of those people that kind of believes that kind of stuff, you you are you do have an obligation to look at the other side of arguments and kind of break yourself out of these information silos and try to find some facts that might challenge your own assumptions. Um, go to the Cato Institute and see some of their research on immigration. Uh, and it might challenge you 
you know? And at, at a certain point, you figure out, like, this side has a lot of data, and this side has a lot of data, but this side has an overwhelming amount of data, and this guy, these people kind of just have some, you know, observations or gut reactions or flawed studies that they've based everything on. You know, when, when I break down the news for my show, I often find, you know, it, it, and it's true in this, I just read you one of these studies, right? If you go and look up the newamericaneconomy.org study, right? Well, I've got one, two, three stories here that all cite it. Because it all comes from one source, you know? Um, so, you can usually kind of find where that piece of information came from. And then you got to just uh, do your homework and just assess their motives. But yeah, I, I generally think that it is based on false assumptions and false information that can be challenged with a little bit of homework and a little bit of empathy. You know, like if I hear a story about a kid sleeping in their own crap in an American prison cell, as an American, that morally outrages me. And I don't care at all how many, you know, excuses you might have as a politician or how many, you know, narratives you want to spin about, you know, like you can claim that's false, fine. But when there's like 15 witnesses, it's pretty hard to claim that's false. Just fix it. Right. So, um, yeah, you've got it. It's just it's a hard it's harder now than it was 10 years or 20 years ago when I was sitting in your seats to understand where the information come came from, even though we have so much more information. It just takes a lot more work. Um, so I, I get that it's kind of frustrating. Yeah. Anything else? You guys learned something? Oh, yeah, for sure. Good, good. Um, I mean, that's pretty much it. I, kind of, I was kind of breezing through the, the outline. We pretty much, you know, went over everything. Um, I don't really have anything else you want to Yeah, you know, the the only fact that I didn't get to was the dreamers. That You know, one of your questions, do refugees hurt or help the country's economy? Um, now, they're not refugees, they're immigrants, but, you know, the the dreamers are 30,000 kids that are not, that do not have American citizenship, but basically grew up, like they were brought here at like one or two. And now they exist in kind of this limbo state in America. Uh, and you may have heard of DACA or the Dreamers, but these 30,000 kids, just 30,000 kids, okay, out of the millions of immigrants that are here, legally or illegally or refugees, contribute nearly, nearly $42 billion annually to the U.S. economy and pay $3.4 billion more in taxes each year than they consume in benefits. Uh, canceling DACA, by contrast, would cost the economy of the United States 43 433 billion over the next 10 years. So when you want to talk about the the benefit of immigration, it's it's enormous because like any other metric, right? The more you increase supply of labor, the more opportunities that get created. Take women entering the workforce in the 70s. You saw a, a massive expansion of the nonprofit and nursing and medical sectors because now there were women that wanted to work and wanted to work in an interest that they felt was important and created opportunities. And immigrants are much the same. They come here and they start stores, they start businesses, and they create economic opportunity for themselves, for their family, for their community. And then they spend money at other businesses. And so the more people you bring into the country, the it's not they're not there's not like it's not like a piece of pie. I ordered pizza yesterday and there's ten slices. And if you eat one of the slices, I have one less slice. That's the wrong way to think about it. That's not how it works. Um, so <coughs> you know, we're um a little uh narrow minded, you know, this country's entire vision has been expansion more, right? And it's worked out pretty well for us. You know, when you compare our life to that of, you know, my Russian friends or my, you know, Chilean friends, we have a pretty nice life here. Uh, pretty nice living. You know, we're we're all unhappy about it, right? As Louis C.K. said, I'm, I'm sitting in a chair flying through the sky, 
finding out that there's Wi-Fi on the plane and I'm mad that I don't have the thing that I didn't know existed until 10 minutes ago. Um, but the more people that enter this country, especially people that understand the value of freedom, somebody that immigrates from Ukraine and Russia, look at how much harder somebody from Ukraine is willing to fight for liberty. I want those people living here. Uh, you know, a lot of us won't fight for our own liberty at, at, at any cost. <laughs> oh, okay, you know, I kind of think a vaccine mandate's wrong, but I'm just going to be quiet about it. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes guilty of that kind of stuff, too. I uh, just go along to get along. Um, but immigrants are often con- coming from countries that have a direct knowledge of totalitarian governments. And you better believe that Republican and Democratic politicians do not want those people here telling on them. And pointing out the obvious that these two sides are moving us in totalitarian directions. And they're both willing to limit immigration for that point, that reason. So it's not just, you know, misinformation or bad policy. It's to intentionally keep the ball rolling in terms of the libertarian spirit. So, uh, you know, immigrants enrich the country in so many different ways and... You know, I'm I'm appreciative, Luke, of you letting me come and talk at you guys about some of the stuff because it's something I'm actually really passionate about. Yeah, I, I think that's something I definitely like. I we, we didn't have a, we were for like five minute conversation after we watched that documentary in Ukraine, but I was I, you know I just try to drive home the point that like like you will probably hopefully in your lifetime like never have to fight for your freedom like you know the people in ukraine have to that were generally pretty much everywhere else in the world throughout all of history has had to do to fight for freedom um and you know we had uh we had another speaker come uh who worked for the reason foundation jacob bridge and he brought up a pretty good point he's like like you know in the grand scheme of like you know republican democratic green party libertarian party none of that really matters as long as the like the political conversation in America is centered around freedom and liberty. As long as people are focused on that as their main priority, then then we win at the end of the day. Yep. And we need allies. And we, yeah. as the libertarian movement, ought to be like Tammany Hall. When those Irish would come off the boats at Ellis Island, Tammany Hall would be right there helping you get a job. They were like Poland, man. You show up in Poland right now as a refugee, they give you a little card with a QR code that leads you to a job fair, to housing, to food, to where the nearest store is, because they know you're disoriented, and they're going to help you. And Tammany Hall used to sit there and, and help folks and then built a political machine out of it. You want to take back liberty and freedom, ally with people who understand the value of liberty and freedom, and start building a political machine that protects individual rights, protects the marginalized, and just protects us from the tyranny of eroding our civil liberties, our economic freedoms, our personal freedoms. So I think the the fear of immigrants in the libertarian movement at the moment is terribly misguided, terribly misinformed. And totally counter to building a movement that liberates this country from these two visions that lead to Russia or China. Well, thank you for coming, Chris. Uh, like I said, if you guys are interested, check out his podcast, The Chris Spangle Show. 